Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Yoga Girl podcast. I feel so honored to introduce this week's guest on the show. This is someone who inspires me and who teaches me so much via social media every day. And I know many of you who are listening right now feel the same. Holistic psychologist, dynamic psychotherapist, founder of the Mindful Healing Center, and one of the first people to make essential tools for healing accessible via social media. You all know her as the holistic psychologist on Instagram. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nicole LaPera. Thank you so, so much for having me, Rachel. I'm truly honored. I'm so excited to be here with you. I have had this request from so many people over the past couple of months to have you on the show. And now I feel like in the middle of a in the middle of the apocalypse is a really good time to, to chat with a holistic psychologist and get some advice. So thank you for taking the time from afar to, to sit with me today. Of course, I'm honored to hear that your community has been throwing my name around. And I think given the circumstances, a lot of hopefully helpful conversations are, are coming out of this. So I am on board and here to connect, like I said, and offer any tools for your community that would be helpful. So this this podcast is called From the Heart. So I like to begin with just a moment of, of of vulnerability, you know, speaking totally from the heart. How are you feeling right now? Quite honestly, right now I'm feeling energetically a little bit depleted. Emotionally, I'm feeling a little bit wrought. Um, on a personal side, I've, one of my cats has been missing for almost two weeks now, so my heart is is in a million different places, obviously, given the context and everything is going on in the climate, but with my own personal little man, I don't know where he is. Um, I'm just I'm a little low, I guess, would be how I'm feeling today. Oh, man, same. Has he done that before? Is that is that I know I, I'm, I'm a dog person, so I don't know cats so well, but has he done that before? <laughs> not not to this extent. I mean, so this is a new thing. He's really savvy and he's also really friendly. So my hope is that he's in some other human's home, making them incredibly happy during this really <laughs> difficult time. And when that human leaves the house and sees his 
please help me find my home sign. He'll come back. So I'm, I'm worried, but I'm also not, not too worried. Oh, probably. Like he's said, probably making someone so happy. Love. He's spreading love. Yeah. I actually really believe that in my heart, Rachel. So that's how I'm, I'm not completely devastated. Oh, I believe that. Too. I bet it's some like really lonely person right now who is all isolated mm-hmm. and then like has a friend for a moment. That's that. yeah, yeah, for sure. So, where are you right now? I mean, how are you? Are you in isolation? You're in total lockdown. Is that is that true for you as well as over here? Yeah, that's that's pretty much true here in LA. I want to say it's been about two weeks now since the the order of lockdown, and streets are pretty empty all around. So, my partner and I, and thankfully we have a team member that also kind of hold up with us here so that we can keep things running and keep our community and keep all of these tools and these resources out there for people. But outside of that, yeah, it's pretty much, pretty much locked down here. Definitely a surreal experience. I just got to LA myself, moved here from Philadelphia February 1st. So I had about a month and a half of, of I guess, normalcy here in LA. And now I'm having definitely a different experience. So um, you're like, this is not what I moved here for. (laughs) Holy, (laughs) holy cow. It's so wild. It's so wild everywhere. And I'm having kind of a weird experience because I'm Swedish. I'm born and raised in Sweden, but I live in Aruba, which is this tiny island. And we are so in such close connection to the US. All of our tourism comes from the US. Mm -hmm. So we're in this like weird in between. And Sweden is the one country in the world that went fuck this shit. Like we're not playing along. (laughs) So everyone I know in Sweden, they have kind of a a normal-ish life where schools are open and restaurants and bars. And Aruba is like the most serious lockdown of any country that I've really, that that I know. Like we're not allowed to be in the street now. So I'm like in with one foot in each place, just like which way is going to be the right way? (laughs) You know, who's doing it right? Is anyone doing it right? Like, are we going to be okay? So I think collectively, this is such a, yeah, what's that experience been like for you? What you're experiencing, because it's such a roller coaster. I go from feeling extremely hopeful in terms of look at these amazing conversations that we're all happening, having right now, the, the so many people going back to basics and meditating and doing a lot of inner work, like, wow, something amazing has to come out from after this. And then I go to the other end of like, this is the end of the world like mm-hmm. we're all gonna die <laughs> I don't have an in-between how how have this has this been for you personally yeah and I think a lot of people Rachel are, are feeling those those extremes what I've been cultivating in myself in general outside of this you know, kind of pandemic experience that we're all living just in general in life I've been trying to cultivate flexibility and what I call with that you said a really pivotal word when you even described the way you were feeling you're saying I'm, I go from I feel hopeful and then other moments, I feel hopeless, if you will, for lack of a better word. That and is the pivotal word that I'm talking about. Because I think a lot of us are having very opposing feelings. Maybe we're feeling all of those things at once. So as a human, I've been really trying in my own emotional journey of healing, I've been trying to cultivate that flexibility and allowing for myself all of my feelings to be true in any given moment, even when they're, and especially when, I should say, when they're opposing. So I say that to say, part of my experience really has been an extension of that. Just trying to make space and allow non-judgmentally and compassionately myself to just observe whatever it is I'm feeling. So some moments, you know, I'm feeling a little bit of a lot of things. Some moments I'm feeling more on the hopeful side, you know. So I think the flexibility has been something I've been trying to honor in myself, just generally overall in terms of my emotional world. 
and my landscape, but also something I've been urging my community and, and everyone else to do, because I think a lot of times we shame ourselves for our feelings. We have this idea of things that we should or shouldn't feel. And it gets even more confusing, I think naturally, when what we're feeling is too opposing things. So for instance, like, yeah, when I'm feeling hopeful and hopeless in the same moment, that's really confusing, but we're really complicated emotional creatures and we can feel all of those things. So we do ourselves a disservice. I say that to say, we do ourselves a disservice, myself included, when I pass judgment on what I'm feeling. When I come to some conclusion, oftentimes based in my, based in my past experiences that I shouldn't feel this way. And that just makes it more difficult. So I say that to say, honoring my feelings has been a really big part of my healing. Also, you know, given what is going on, and I definitely urge we all do that, that flexibility, allowing it all to be true when it is all true for us. Allowing it all to be true when it is all true for us. And it's such a spiritual, spiritual truth, too. I, I am so fascinated with how psychology and f- from my personal experience of the practice and teachings of yoga really align in this, in this complex, beautifully nonsensical, but also like a space that makes total sense when we're in that, mm. when we're in that place of healing. And I find that what's so for me fascinating about following you and what you share online is things that for me feel so complex that I have to have, I have to have moments of, of total grace, like one of those moments of epiphany of, oh my God, everything makes sense. And it's so hard to get to those places, but somehow you uncomplicate things. <laughs> like I, I can read what you share with the world in terms of from that psychological standpoint and go, oh, I feel that. Like that's something I couldn't put into words. That means the world hearing that. Thank you, Rachel, for saying that. A big That's been a big motivation for me through this whole journey. And I think is really a testament to why the community has grown as it has. Because these concepts have existed. I just think that, I mean, the field, the psychological field has done humanity, if you will, the collective a disservice by not giving these concepts the more understandable, you know, workable, practical application. So something I've been really passionate about is doing just that. So hearing that this is translating, like I said, I see that it is just because the community of followers continues to grow. And I think that's just a testament of that. We can, like you, now look at a concept, watch it, apply it in our daily life and create some incredible change. Yeah, I mean, you have 2 million followers on on Instagram for you know dedicated to psychology like that's really trippy to me incredible Incredible. yeah it really really is but so for someone who who maybe doesn't know you yet or kind of kind of skims past maybe things that you're sharing that isn't that invested yet I would love for you to share a little bit more about your background and also for people who are listening you know what is holistic psychology and how does that differ from traditional psychology because I, I I wouldn't know how to how to put that into words yeah, absolutely. And, and this is this is a new a new thing. I think this speaks to the field and um, kind of where the field, at least as far as I see it, has been stuck um, for some time. Because the reality of it is, Rachel, is holistic psychology like hasn't hasn't been a thing. No one's really talked about it. I think the field itself had gotten off course, and we need to return. So I say all that to say, so who I am, as a on a human note, uh, I'm an individual who is known anxiety for as long as I can remember. I'm a little girl, scared of the world, hiding under tables, afraid people are going to break in, my parents are going to get unwell. So I had a lot of anxieties. I loved health-based anxieties to focus on the worst case scenarios that could happen. Pretty much that's what I knew, given the human that I was. 
as long as I can remember, you know, when they start to ask you what you want to be when you grow up, as someone who is just fascinated by the mind and kind of what makes people do and think as they do, psychologist was something you would have always heard me talking that I, I wanted to be. So flash forward, I did all the training. I got a, I received a PhD in clinical psychology. All the while, again, my anxiety was for me, a conversation based on management of symptoms. That was pretty much what we were taught um, in my field was if you had that chip or if you didn't have that chip, you know, that, that gave you that anxiety, that pretty much that was going to be a lifetime and you're, you, you could manage your symptoms, but it pretty much wouldn't go away. So in, on my personal side of things, you know, I did just that. I was on medication. I was in talk therapy, um, all different kinds of talk therapy. I did all of the things and I still, my anxiety was there pretty much. From, from what, what age did you, did you start I don't even remember anxiety. I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't feeling anxious. I finally sought treatment when I was in my early 20s. I was living in New York City and panic attacks started to become a really big issue for me. So anyone who's had a panic attack out there, I feel you. I know how scary they are. They quite literally feel like a heart attack, heart racing, sometimes sweating, really, really terrible, scary, scary experience. So in my early 20s, just so happens also coincided with a health crisis that my mom was having. So remember, if when one has health anxiety, when there is a health scare happening, I mean, for me, it was an absolute nightmare. So that's why I believe that is the time period. So for me, early 20s for about a year, panic attacks were always, always present for me. And at that point, I decided to go and to seek treatment to get some medication and to start to talk to someone. And did that help uh, immediately or was it? Honestly, yes. I mean, I, I felt that I got enough control over my anxiety that I wasn't feeling as debilitated. Uh, however, I also felt I needed to walk around with my medication in my back pocket for that just in case. I knew that that was what was helping me, especially when I was on a benzo. I'm not sure, you know, the listeners out there, the, the clonopins, the Xanaxes. So I felt dependent on it in a sense to calm my anxiety. But yes, it did. It did help that panic. Talking, I mean, talking helped. I'm someone who was interested, you know, in, in people. So going into that therapy room and talking to a therapist was something that I was interested in doing. because I, you know, I wanted to understand myself. Interestingly enough, you know, at that point in time, I, and this might sound crazy, I, I wasn't aware, I wasn't allowing into my consciousness the truth of my, my childhood in, in, a, in a full way. So I had this story about what things were like for me as a child. So in that early 20 stage of my life, you would have heard me telling a much different rendition of my childhood. You would have heard me say everything was great. And, you know, all my needs were perfectly met. While it wasn't not great, I've come to realize, I mean, it wasn't a terrible childhood I, I've had. I've come to realize, and this is why I'm also passionate talking about this, I've come to realize that there are a lot of ways that we are wounded in our childhood that exist outside of what many of us have come to know as the big T of trauma, right? The instances of abuse or neglect, when you really do know that some bad thing happened to you. I really have come to realize, and this is the camp that I fall in, as a lot of us do, I believe, is that there's a lot of other avenues that we carry this childhood wounding. And this is this is so interesting, I think, because mm -hmm. for a lot of people, and, and I get this question a lot as, as someone who had pretty big traumas or several big things with a big T that I can point to, I, I get this question a lot, but I had I had such a great childhood, 
you know, why do I feel this way? How can I, like, like, it's like we, we are allowed to feel like crap because we had those big T traumas. And then if we don't, we should just suck it up and be happy because we have, why should we complain? Yeah. A lot of us, a lot of us do tell ourselves those stories. We rationalize our feelings. We, you know, see the person who, who has a a worst case scenario. We minimize our experience. I mean, a lot of us have a difficult time acknowledging and honoring our feelings, our experiences. So what is, for someone listening who, uh, uh, who doesn't know or who feels like it's a little unclear, what, what constitutes a trauma? Absolutely. So, you know, I think any instances of, I have defined for this way that we as humans universally share what I, what I term three core needs. And those three core needs are to be seen, to be heard, and to be kind of allowed the space to be authentically ourselves. Those, I believe, are our are, are three core needs. So when we don't feel have those needs met consistently enough in childhood, of course, there's always the one-off, you know, where a parent can't show up for us. But if it's a consistent scenario, then a lot of us do carry that childhood wounding and conditioned behaviors that are related to that childhood wounding that was our mode of, of coping. So for me, just to kind of bring this story full circle so that I can really illustrate. So in my 20s, I'm having panic attacks, and I was that person who told you my childhood was great. I didn't have those big glaring things. I'm in school now, so I learned enough about what those big glaring things were that I know I didn't have, right? Yet, I was still struggling, and I thought, okay, of course I'm still struggling. A lot of people are struggling with anxiety. Flash forward some years. I now have a private practice, the Mindful Healing Center. I have a successful practice. I'm seeing clients week after week, you know, for at this point, several years. And I, over time, gradually start to get sick, sick physically. I start to have all of these crazy physical symptoms. I start to faint. I start to forget my words mid-sentence. I start to just not feel well physically. Uh, Emotionally, that anxiety starts to pick up again. So where it felt manageable for some time, it started to feel quite unmanageable again. And I just had this this deep sense of despair and hopelessness. And that felt confusing because now I'm looking away. I'm quite young. I have a quite a successful practice. I have a partner that I, you know, I, I happen to like. My life all around looks like it should be like I've arrived. And yet I had such a sense of hopelessness. And I really call this period my dark night of the soul. So hmm. descending into that, I jump online as a lot of us do. Cause the first thing that scared me quite honestly, Rachel, were the physical symptoms. I was really afraid. Remember I have health anxiety. So this was a nightmare to me. I was really concerned that something was actually wrong with me, which the gift of that, of that fear was I dove into this rabbit hole of research online and I saw all of this new science and all of this new uh, inf- or maybe you know information on the body and on our nervous system and this whole world that I just wasn't taught in school. So after a lot of research, I really put together uh, a plan for myself. It really started off with some self-healing and I began to make some lifestyle changes. Uh, I changed my life. I changed the way I showed up in my life. My anxiety started to go away. I started to, for the first time, shift the way I felt my entire life. So that's what really brought me into working holistically is in my own healing journey, I did bring in some lifestyle interventions, I started to realize the importance of, you know, a meditation practice of breath work of moving my body of eating, you know, putting into my body the things that, you know, make it feel well, 
And overdoing that, I started to realize that that's a necessity for all of us, that a lot of us are struggling in the ways that we're struggling because of the choices that we're making each and every day. And this is where, in, in terms of my own realizations about my childhood, really started to, to come come to, to the top. You know, as I started to heal, as I started to become more balanced in my body, I started to be more connected to my body. So part of the reason why I thought my childhood was one way when I was growing up, and I started to talk about this, and I think this resonates with a lot of people, is I had very few memories of my childhood growing up. I was what we call dissociated for a, lot, a large part of it. And that's a nervous system response. It's kind of where we check out of our bodies. And so because I was so checked out, the reality was of it was, my, I thought it was okay because I was so disconnected from how I was feeling. So once I came to that realization and really started to repair that connection and become more into my body, which is, I mean, yoga, you being so connected in the yoga community, all the listeners, I mean, the practice of yoga can be so healing for those of us that are so disconnected from our, our physical selves as a lot of us are. So the short of it is once I started to undergo that and to really come and become more connected to myself, then is where I started to have all of these realizations about those wounds that I carried. Um, I started to obviously talk about all of this online. And then I really started to see the universal resonance of this more holistic method. Um, a lot of people were writing me saying they felt very similarly, right? Felt stuck, just felt generally, you know, not able to make change in their life. And at that point, I really knew that I was on to something that we did have to shift and not treat the mind or the brain as separate from the body, as separate from the soul, as psychology had been doing for far too long. But I mean, how, how many years did you spend studying prior to this moment of, of realizing that something was, was missing? So, I mean, I've been studying psychology and, and all aspects of it since, since I was young. I mean, since I was in high school and while I was in my clinical training, I went outside of my clinical training and sought any, you know, kind of other modal, you know, any other type of therapy. So I've been learning about the mind, about psychology in my training program on my own for as long as I can remember. Once I was out of school, obviously, then I started to self-teach. And that's where then I really opened my mind up to all of these other, you know, modalities of healing, about the body, about the the nervous system. And I, I pretty much sat in that, in that learning stage for several years. And I'm still learning. I mean, I, I consider myself, my dad's joke growing up was always going to be, was always, I'm going to be a lifetime student. He meant in school, the truth of the matter is I, I am going to be a lifetime student. So I'm still learning. I mean, I still have, you know, five books on my Kindle all queued up waiting for me to read uh, some on the you know new science of the body. So I'm always learning and I always intend to learn. And because this is this field, especially science, is so evolving. We're we're new in a lot of ways to some of this information. So information is going to keep changing, and I'm always going to be open to learning. So I haven't stopped. So the, I guess the short answer is I've always been learning, and I always plan to learn. Yeah, but I think for, to me it's so fascinating that the I have never known another form of psychology other than holistic psychology uh, or, or, or I, I used to call it holistic therapy before I found before I found you online so when I was um, so I uh, I don't know how much of my story that that you know but I had a lot of trauma and death and and crazy things happen when I was little and my first ever interaction with something different or with a different kind of of thinking was when my mom sent me to a meditation retreat when I was 17 so super young 
And I didn't know it then, but of course I've learned since that the the facilitators of this retreat were all psychologists who were spe- specialized in this more holistic field of of connecting with the body, of of in, incorporating yoga into that practice, of trauma release exercise, of um, mm-hmm. primal work and shadow work and things like that. So that was my first ever interaction on that kind of, it was like a therapeutic meditation retreat. And then I did several of those and that's all I knew. And then for a little while, I saw a, a holistic psychologist who, who, who uh, had that kind of practice for a little, when I was 18-ish after that. And then I left Sweden and then I got into yoga and, and this is my life. And now we do, we do trauma healing retreats that, uh, where we incorporate yoga here at our studio. And so I have never had any experience with um, mm-hmm. like, like any other traditional type of psychology. So when I started doing more research also in, in, in before talking to you now, just how, how little, how tiny of a sliver this idea of psychology is compared to the traditional talk therapy that exists in the rest of the world how does the 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 psychology i guess the professional community how does the majority of people look at this new way of approaching of approaching the mind and of approaching trauma and healing is it accepted is it like this is where we're all heading or do some people think that this is some kind of woo woo hippy dippy thing (laughs) yeah absolutely i think it's I think it's a little, it's a little bit of both. So if I speak honestly, when I, you know, when I got to the stage in my healing where I started to feel like I wanted to talk about it, you know, the internet, I was watching how people were using social media. So that became with, with the sole intention being, I want to start to speak more honestly about my message, about my truth. And I want to start to connect with other people who are maybe living that same truth. Cause I was at the stage in my healing where I was starting to feel lonely. So as I went on, knowing that the humans that would be seeing my work, some of whom might be my peers in terms of professionally, I was scared. I was a little bit concerned. Um, I was I was not sure of what they would think of my message. I was pretty positive that very few of them, if any, like myself, actually learned about this in school. Now, this isn't to say, because a lot of healers in the, in the mental wellness field are very much attracted to what has been long known as the alternative or the holistic method. Um, I believe that's becoming the more mainstream ones, but I say that to say that I think intuitively a lot of us understood the need to work holistically. So some, you know, w- would have like myself thought out those, but if we're really looking at what was presented in our training programs, whether you're the PhD or the PsyD, like myself, the psychology degree, or the social worker, or the, you know, master's level clinicians, or the marriage and family therapists, I really, I, I did not imagine that they were learning about the body or the holistic kind of modality as I hadn't either. So I was scared. So I went online and I wasn't sure. And I get a little bit of both. I get more overwhelmingly clinicians reaching out saying, thank you, saying I've been feeling stuck, saying I've known this, saying I've been using these tools in my practice, even though I didn't necessarily learn about them, you know, saying thank you and being a little bit more vocal in speaking, you know, up for their own agreement in this need and in a very small, 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 small majority, I do think that there, I do get kickback. I think just like any, anyone does, you know, new ideas that I think are feeling threatening, you know, being told that it's woo-woo or I'm spiritually bypassing. I mean, I've heard a, a lot of different versions of what this, this, this new work is resulting in. But like I said, that's the large minority, um, the large majority. I have, I actually offer professional mentorship sessions. I'm going to be opening up 
professional membership at some point in the next year. So overwhelmingly, people are, I think, very much resonating because they feel the same way I did. We feel limited. And it's a Mm. terrible thing to feel like you're the helper in the room and you don't have the right tools. Right. Mothers deserve the absolute best. So this Mother's Day, spoil the moms in your life with little luxuries from Osea. Osea's skin and body care is the perfect way to remind all the moms, mother figures, caregivers, grandmothers, and mother-in-laws in your life to make time for themselves. If you have been looking for the perfect gift, I recommend Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I've been using it for years and it seems like every single time I apply it, I get compliments on my skin. This body oil is rich, but it's never greasy and it's clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. Your skin will feel more sculpted and toned and you'll be left feeling silky, soft and glowing. Another favorite of mine is the Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Ever since I've been using collagen, I have noticed a difference in my skin. In fact, it's never been better. Using Osea's body oil and lotion together is a mega moisture duo, giving you a full body glow. Osea's products are infused with their signature Andaria seaweed, but it's also clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Really just a perfect gift for yourself, the moms in your life, and even the planet. Spoil the moms in your life with clean, vegan skin and body care from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code YOGA at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. So, I mean, looking at it now, thinking that we can treat only the brain as a, a separate from our whole being, as if the body isn't really a part of that of that conversation. What, what's been your biggest takeaway in terms of, in terms of how incorporating both, I guess, how, how does trauma, does trauma live in the body and how does that, how does that manifest for us in our day-to-day lives? Absolutely. I mean, trauma, I will always say, so using me as an example, because I get a lot of questions, you know, I can't remember my childhood. So I don't even know if I had the big T or the little T or what actually happened. I always will proclaim that we, you don't need to have the like, it's called an autobiographical memory. So when you kind of kind of close your eyes and remember, you know, Christmas when you were five, that kind of visual, you don't need that because we, we do remember. We remember in our bodies, we live our trauma out. We enact the, like I was saying earlier. So the ways we, we learn to cope with our trauma, we live that out in our condition patterns and the ways we show up in the world and our everything from our behavioral patterns, how we take care of ourselves, our bodies, our emotions, our spiritual life on any given day. How do we show up in our relationships? We are incredibly patterned creatures. We have conditioned roles that many of us tend to play in our relationships, not all of which serve us. All of those, in my opinion, are the remnants of this trauma, are the remnants of the adaptations that we lived or that we incorporated at a very early time to get those three early needs met. Remember, to get our, to make to make ourselves available, to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel loved, to feel authentic. We adapt it in these ways, and then we live our conditioning. So we are living our traumas out on a day-to-day basis, some of it in form of body dysregulation. So this is why the body is so important. The brain, I like to remind everyone, is an organ. It is housed in the body. So it receives its nutrients in the same way that all of our other organs do. So for it to to perform, you know, at, at its highest, or even in a balanced way, we need to consider how our body and whether our body is balanced. 
So speaking from my own healing journey, Rachel, I, I, I tried the avenues of the traditional therapy of keeping my mind separate. I tried just talking about things. I tried medicating and it didn't work. So for me, it wasn't until I did that holistic healing. It wasn't until I resolved some underlying physiological imbalances in my body that were causing a lot of my symptoms. It wasn't until I began a consistent practice of, for me, it's breath work to regulate for which a dysregulated nervous system. A lot of us are living in traumatized bodies that are have a dysregulated nervous system that keeps us stuck in fight or flight responses for many of us. For me, that was part of my story. Unless I began to do that breath work, my body was stuck in fight or flight. I had to manually teach my body, my nervous system, how to be in a more balanced state. And then there was the whole world of, for me, my spirituality. I didn't even consider myself a spiritual being. I didn't even consider myself a soul. A lot of the reason why I was feeling so hopeless is because I wasn't living in alignment in how I was showing up in the world. So for me, those, that holistic those holistic methods were integral. I don't think I would have healed unless I began to work on that big integrated level. So what did that look like to you? I mean, logistically, did you have help or was this healing that you did on your own that you started incorporating just through, through research and feeling into what makes sense? Or did you see someone who kind of held your hand throughout this, this time of your life? Well, so I, I, I consider the health, all of the, the books and the education. And, you know, I, I really, I, and I looked at all different pathways of healing. You know, I, I would look at argument because some of these areas, you know, when you're thinking about lifestyle changes, there's a lot of conflicting information. So I would read it all. And then I would, so the help I really had, and I'm eternally grateful was with my partner, my partner who very similarly, though, our, our timeline of healing was a little bit different but very much was going through her own dark night and healing journey. So she, in terms of the emotional help, but also the logistical help. I mean, she's my partner. We live together. So making the lifestyle changes, I'm endlessly grateful um, that I had someone on board making them with me. It doesn't mean that you can't make changes if you're in a partnership and your partner, you know, is not on board or maybe is, you know, in opposition. I think a lot of, I get a lot of questions about that. So my help was really in the form of, of a supportive partner who thankfully was living the same, the same journey. So then what I did, because change is hard, I talk a lot about why change is hard. I began to implement, I had a whole list of things that I wanted to change. I began to implement them one by one. So I began to change gradually my nutrition and then I began to, began to change my sleep habits. And then I began to build in a daily habit of moving my body, right? I didn't do it all at once. And I began to just get consistent in my daily life of creating daily habits that would serve me in making these changes long term. I think this is so it's uplifting to hear because I think for a lot of people, we have this idea that that what I've gone through in my life or the the wounds or the baggage, the patterns that I'm stuck in, it's so overwhelming, right? It's like it's like if mm-hmm. I go there, it's like I'm opening Pandora's box and I don't know what's going to come out. So it's actually even though it's uncomfortable and I'm unhappy or I have all these symptoms, it's actually more convenient for me to keep going in the tracks that I've been forming my whole life. And we have this idea that I need Nicole in my life, right? I need someone, I need this the amazing psychologist or therapist 
therapist or I need these continuous retreats where I go across the world and I sit in a room with people and specialists. It's like those kinds of healing tools that 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 I think or that I've seen or witnessed have, have changed my life are very inaccessible. It's very hard for people to have that kind of money, to take that kind of time away from family and, and, and all those things. So hearing you say this, I think it's very uplifting because it means that there are things that we can actually do at home alone. Do you, do you find that to be true? I want to extend it further. And I want to, and I want to go on the record saying, I don't think those things are even enough outside of privilege that, that does bar many of us from being able to experience those. I don't ever see while they can be incredible tools. And I definitely, you'll never hear me urging people out of therapy weekly or any other extent, you know, kind of additional support or, or workshops or retreats. I mean, there's so much that is available if you are privileged enough to be able to engage in those things. And I don't think it's enough because what happens when you come home from that retreat weekend or what happens the other, however many hours or in a week outside of that one therapy hour, you are at risk to live those normal, those, what, what I'm calling normal, the familiar, I should say, those old habits. So I always think it is about both. It's about if you have the privilege of having that support, whether it's in the form of a, a weekly appointment with whatever practitioner or healer or monthly, or whether it's in the form of a workshop or a retreat, there's still that daily maintenance. And that's why I think, again, that old model is limited because I don't think healing, this is, it's the gym, right? When we talk about the cliche thing about the gym. You can't, you know, pump iron for five minutes one day a week and expect the muscles to come or even an hour, right? You have to have that more consistent small practices. So I want to extend that and say, those of us who have privilege, those things can be incredible tools. You can go away and learn some great practices, but then once you come back, you really have to begin to incorporate that change each day because that's where the familiar lives. That's where the autopilot is. That's where the conditioning is being lived. That's driving those habits that are keeping us stuck or those re keeping us in those relationships that aren't fulfilling us or whatever it may be. So what do you think is, because this is all of course so individual and, and, and depending on each person's unique scenario, but what do you think is a, is a good place to begin, you know, for anyone who is listening now, who, who resonates, who knows I have this, all this stuff in my back, in, in, in my background, in my, in my past, I don't know how to deal with it. And there are also people listening who are, who have all those things in check. Like I sleep well, I take care of my body, I eat well, I do yoga every day, I still feel stuck. Where do I begin? First step I'm always talking about is creating a daily practice of consciousness because the reality of it is most of us are living in autopilot 95% of the day. So what is autopilot? Just to keep this really simple. I'm really simplifying this. We have two parts of our mind, if you will. We actually have three, but for, for all intents and purposes, we have what's called the conscious mind. That is the part of our brain that actually separates us from other animals. That is the part of our brain that makes us human. That allows us to think about thought. It allows us to observe ourselves in the world. It allows us to creatively solve problems. It's the, it's the house for all of those higher order, what we call the really complicated ways that we can use our brain that are different from animals. That's our conscious mind. Then we have our subconscious mind. And we need our subconscious mind because if this is the example, right? I'm driving my car home and I'm not paying attention because I'm actually thinking about the fight I just had with my partner, but yet I'm home safe. Well, how did I get home? Who drove the car? What drove the car is that set of, I call them programs. You think the, 
a computer analogy, it's that set of programs that lives in that subconscious part of your mind, right? And that is what's running the show 95% of our day. It's helpful because if we had to think consciously every day how to be human, we would absolutely exhaust ourselves. The problem is, is that what lives in that subconscious are all of those conditioned programs that also aren't serving us. Are those ways that we learn to show up maybe say in relationships to get those needs met that aren't actually serving us anymore. It's the people pleasing habit that a lot of us have created to make, make sure that we you know, in, uh, maintain the love of our caregivers say that we continue, we show up always now as a people pleaser in all of our relationships and we're left not feeling fulfilled. So the reason why we need to practice a new way of being, a conscious way of being, is so that we can get choice, so that we can show up and say, actually, I'm not going to you know, pick up this phone call today of this person who I don't feel like talking to. I'm going to put up a boundary or do whatever new thing that I want to do. We don't get the chance to make a change if we're living in autopilot. So consciousness is the first habit, I believe, that we all need to create. So meditation those of you who meditate, meditation is a great practice of creating consciousness. It's the practice of learning how to separate ourselves from that, con that subconscious mind, from all the thoughts that are wrapped up in there, all the programs that we're running each day so that we can create choice. So whether it's meditation, if you have never meditated, it can be, it can be a, an overwhelming practice to begin with. So starting very small, for some people, I suggest just building a conscious moment into their day. So it might not even look like meditation because I know that can be overwhelming for some people. It might look like setting a, a timer, an alarm on my phone, random time during the day. And when that alarm when that alarm goes off, it might look like just reconnecting with my body in that moment, with my breath, with my senses. Oh, where, where am I? What am I smelling in this room that I'm sitting in? I might not even know I'm in a room because I might be so lost in thought so not in my conscious mind. So sometimes it looks like creating those daily seconds where my alarm goes off and I'm centered and I'm in my body, where I'm learning how to be conscious. In my opinion, no change happens without a habit of that consciousness. That is so, I'm just sitting here nodding, like, yes, yes, yes. I heard you. I heard you. you heard me nodding. I, 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 I sometimes tell, tell my students that, to have one routine a day that isn't this idea that we have of what's what's spiritual or what's meditation or not or mindfulness like yoga or, or or sitting in silence or whatever it is, but to have one regular daily like maybe a boring routine that we do every day or several times a day. If it's like now at pandemic time, it could be washing our hands because we do that a lot. Or every time I I feed my kid, like I'm sitting down to like to make sure that she eats, like one of those moments in the day that I decide this is my super present time that isn't meditation because sometimes we put it on such a pedestal that it's like, you know, it's entirely possible to make your way through an entire yoga class and pat yourself on the, on the back, but you weren't actually all the way there. Absolutely. And I'm going to go ahead and say something else too. Even a great meditation habit, if you do sit and meditate, say for 10 minutes, 15 minutes each morning, while yes, you can, you, you are changing the brain. We now know via science that meditation does change the brain. Our brain is what we call neuroplastic, so it's changeable. So just sitting can actually change the way our brain fires and our way, you know, so we can carry that, of course, then throughout our day. However, I believe that that's still not enough. Because even if I meditate and then I do go and I get lost in thought for the rest of my day or I just allow my autopilot, you know, to, to run my show, 
then that 15 minutes in meditation isn't creating change the other 24 hours and, you know, whatever, 45 minutes of my day. So I, again, that's why I always talk about the dailiness of the habits because it's in our day, right, that our partner comes home. And I have that pivotal moment of either that old reaction that doesn't get me what I want in my relationship or the new response, right? That's when it really matters. So that 15 minute meditation at 8 a.m. might not even be enough if I'm mm. so lost in my autopilot by 4 p.m. that I'm screaming at my partner again. <laughs> right? That's so true. <laughs> or like people that you see on their way to yoga meditation class, yeah. like screaming at people in traffic because they're so pissed off. <laughs> Mindfulness, and now you're right back in that autopilot. <laughs> and it's so, it's so, it's so true. And I think what's what's now. I mean, now that we are all collectively in this very challenging time, what I have found is, has always been so true for me is that it's only in moments of of pressure, of crisis, of some sort of you know something not working in my life, or or something really hard, or even grief or trauma. It's in those moments that I have actually been able to cultivate the most presence, the most consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's never, I mean, or very rarely when everything is going my way and butterflies and rainbows and I'm on the beach <laughs> and life is great. And then I have this huge realizations about my patterns and my triggers and my childhood. And no, no, you know, those things come when we are mm -hmm. under pressure or I think we have this increased ability to actually look at, okay, what isn't working? So taking this time now, I think, how, do you think that we can collectively do more of this healing work now that we are in a place of struggle? Or is it like adding a heavy thing on top of other heavy things? I think which is really interesting, just kind of piggybacking on this, this kind of conversation about, you know, the familiar, that autopilot, the, I mean, more overwhelmingly than not, or more of us than, than not are having that a large scale disruption in our patterns. Right. So we're not getting up and doing that same, you know, autopilot of getting myself out the door to go to the office job. To do, right. So I think that because things are so different for so many of us in our daily life, we're having that pattern disruption, which can automatically trigger a lot of us in a lot of ways, can activate us emotionally, can make us feel unsafe, can start to bring to the surface some of these deeper things as is, because we're not lost in that autopilot that we would have been on what is today, you know, Monday at whatever time it is, you know, we're not doing the same thing we always do on every other Monday, our Monday looks a little different. So I think it's jostling a lot of us in that way, because it's snapping a lot of us, you know, uh, against many of our wills out of that autopilot to begin with, which can create for some that this opportunity right, to become more conscious, to really explore the ways that your life is looking different now that your pattern has been interrupted, allowing you to possibly see your patterns a bit clearer so that you can maybe make a bit of change. Hmm. This reminds me of, I had a, I had Gretchen Rubin on the show a little while ago. I don't know if you know who she is. She wrote The, mm -hmm. the Happiness Project. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about ha patterns and habits, but more from the superficial or material standpoint of, I want to eat better or run every day or quit smoking or, or those kinds of, of daily habits. And she said that the best time to cultivate a new habit is in a big, in a time of transition. So if you're moving or switching jobs, mm -hmm. like that's when you should quit smoking, not in your everyday space. So of course, mm -hmm. this makes sense that this is also true internally 
as well. But I, I had a really shameful thought yesterday <laughs> or shameful. I felt shame around this realization that I had. So I the one really good thing that I think from me that that has come out of this time of isolation is I'm finding myself in a totally different pace in my life. I mean, as all of us are, but actually being able to enjoy the slow pace of things right now, I'm finding myself more present in the little moments of my day-to-day than that than that, that I normally cannot access without really trying or making this effort. And one of the results of that is I, I started a, a vegetable garden here at the house. And it's been so wonderful to be in the garden every day, to tend to these plants. Like I'm so present with these growing things all day, every day. And I had this moment yesterday where I was like, oh, I hope this lockdown lasts a long time. <laughs> and then immediately I caught myself like, <gasps> like, what was that horrible thought, you know, that I immediately started shaming myself of like, so many people are suffering. Like we have had people on our team who lost their jobs. Like this is a horrible time for the world and you are enjoying this moment right now. And it hit me today of like, okay, all of these changes that have come my way because of the pandemic, some of them that have been good, what was stopping me from doing that before? What on earth kept me from starting this garden prior to coronavirus? Like, why why did I feel like this kind of slower life wasn't available to me when actually it was? Like, I can just reach for it. So how do we, I guess my question is, how can we balance this really, really sensitive space of we can find opportunity here, we can find nuggets of gold, of beauty, of, of positive change, but at the same time honoring the fact that this is a, a collective tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is where it's beautiful. And I thank you, uh, Rachel, for, for sharing, you know, what was a shameful moment with, with me and with the collective, because I think this is beautiful. This is where we can apply what I was offering earlier, that flexibility, that and, you know, and I can, uh, I will offer everyone the absolution, if you will, to forgive yourself if you're feeling like Rachel, if you have a moment of positive, I mean, I hate using the words positive and negative, but of of gratitude or of joy, or if you are in appreciation for something that ha- you've created or has been allowed for your creation, you know, given what's happening and other people are suffering and I'm scared and I'm hopeful, right? This is, I think, where we can apply that and and be compassionate with ourselves, you know, and allowing multiple truths, multiple realities, multiple experiences of any given moment to be okay, to be allowed. So I think, you know, thank you for sharing that. I think it's evolving to, you know, when when you are someone out there who is having a moment of, of gratitude or whatever it might be for what you're creating now as a result of what's happening, allowing that to be your truth in that moment, even if someone else's truth in that same moment is not as as positive, both can exist at once. So I think that's a perfect place where we could use that and and we don't necessarily have to fully shame ourselves, you know, because someone's immediate moment looks or feels different than ours. Because I know you're feeling, I know all of us as a collective are also feeling the pain of what's going on with, with within us all. Hmm. Yeah, I love that and instead of either or, you know, it's like this or that. It's like I can be I can be all of these things. I can be compassionate and feel and feel this pain and also have a moment of gratitude and 
and all of it happens at the same time. It's hard to be a human being. It's hard. That's why I said we're incredibly <laughs> complicated emotional creatures and we don't come with a user manual and the reality of it is, and not to dive into another whole conversation you and I could probably <laughs> chat about for hours, right? A lot of us were raised by caregivers who are not equipped to teach, you know, and, and we cannot teach someone what we do not know or do not use ourselves. You know, so when I say emotions, we are incredibly complicated emotional creatures with, for many of us, very limited coping tools because of what we were modeled, because of what we were taught. And it was of no ill intention, often of our caregivers. It was like I said, they can only give what they give themselves. They can only teach a child how to navigate emotions in the way we navigate emotions. Mm -hmm. I would love to, to touch on this a bit because this was the, I, I took some questions on social media yesterday. This was the, the biggest or the most asked question around generational or ancestral trauma. Is this, a, because I feel like it's, it's almost a little trendy, this term. I feel like we, we hear about it a lot, the idea of tra trauma being passed down and ancestral trauma. And is this my pain or my ancestors' pain? Could you share a little bit about that? Is ancestral trauma, is it, is it real? I think it's incredibly real. And I think those of us who have been observing, you know, our, our patterns, our habits, you know, as I have myself, we can see the remnants, you know, of it being of some of our coping tools or some of our conditioned habits and patterns being passed down. So a short little example, my, my grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother was very, very, so my mother grew up in a very emotionally cold household. Her mother is described as very cold. I, I was, I never met this grandmother really. I was very young when she died. But the, the picture I get is very emotionally cold, not a warm relationship between my mother and her mother. So then my mother has children. And while I would describe my mother's relationship with us as probably slightly more warm than that which she had with her own mother in terms of emotional, she was really emotionally withdrawn. Why? Because she, was, she didn't know how to emotionally connect because her mother was not available to teach her how to emotionally connect. So before you know it, Now, how did I describe myself as a child? Disconnected, dissociated, mm. not attached to my emotions, not feeling close to my mother, not feeling emotionally connected, right? So now that's just a little example. The patterns, you know, in, in my family and in the generations, they are multiple, um, but this is one of those prime examples. So now, right, and I carried this into my relationship. Before my current partner, who I've begun to heal and show up differently, though I'm still a work in progress in terms of you know, really being connected to my emotions, so therefore I can connect with hers. All of my previous partners, Rachel, I was just as dissociated, yet I would complain. You're not emotionally connected to me, partner. I don't feel really close to you. I thought it was them. I've come to realize it was me, I, or at least it was partially me. It was both of us. I was playing a part. I was picking partners that could keep me safely you know, distanced from them. And then I was bitching. But then I came to realize that part of it was me. I wasn't showing up in an emotional manner. I wasn't emotionally available for my, for my partners. So how could I be connected to them? How could I be emotionally available? I was not connected to my mother. She was not connected to her mother. And that's just a, just a really quick example of how this intergener, and this goes in, in, in many different habits, in many different patterns. A lot of us carry just our lifestyle habits you know, from our, from generations, beliefs, beliefs are a huge thing that are intergenerationally transmitted. You know, if you look back in your, in your, in your family history, your ancestral line, you might kind of, you might come to see all the family kind of having similar, and I don't mean just like, you know, um, religious-based beliefs, beliefs about roles and relationships, gender beliefs. I mean, we believe things about all things. 
and I believe too that those are hematopoietic. I believe that those are can uh, transmit it as well through patterns. And you can see when you look back in your own family histories. Yeah, and this is uh, this is probably the thing I am I am most interested in, and I have had this this huge kind of thirst for knowing more about 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 my family, our our past. Like, how did everybody feel when they were little? That that was the thing I always wanted to know as I grew mm -hmm. up. Like, what was their childhood like? Did everybody have it this way? And I think it makes actually when I, when I was I, I was eleven or twelve, and we had a. Uh, it was philosophy class or maybe literature. I, I don't know what, what kind of class I was in, but we had an assignment that was, where do you think evil comes from? Like where, I don't know if it was like a, they wanted to go to a mm -hmm. religious route or what the purpose of the exercise was. And we had to write a little paper on where evil comes from. And I still have this, this paper from when I was like <laughs> 11. And I wrote about ancestral trauma. I wrote, you know, someone grew up not feeling well, not feeling seen, being bullied or being not treated well. And then they grew up and then they did that to their kids. And then they grew up and they did that. To, and I wrote like this whole paper about people growing up and then passing that on because that made so much sense to me. And then my teacher was so baffled, like you missed the mark. What this is a very strange, strange. Oh my God, I'm sitting here thinking what an enlightened child. <laughs> I remember like what, but what other way is there? Like, you know, that seems so obvious, like, of course. But what I'm, I'm really struggling with now and in my current life situation is how do we balance that in our family dynamics knowing that you know I can feel compassion for my family knowing that they had a shit time growing up and that their parents had an even shittier time growing up and that we have all of this all of this trauma in our baggage but it's still today like I don't feel comfortable in this family dynamic or I I, I don't want to participate in what, what I think is toxic or not healthy. I want to set a boundary, but I still understand why they act the way they act. So why can't I just love them enough to allow it? You know what I mean? Well, I, I can make a statement. Yeah, that's not, that's not necessarily love. There's another where the and can come in. So those of you who have followed my story might know this already, or I'm maybe sharing something new with most of you, is I, I currently have no contact with my family. It's been like that for almost two years, a year and a half now. Not that I don't love them. It's that similar thing. You know, I love them. And I know for me, obviously, this is a much more longer like discussion I could and would be willing to have. But ultimately, for me, you know, I can love them. And I needed that space from them for my own healing. So it was an and thing. And I just say that because love, and I think love, has gotten a lot of the way love has been defined again a lot of this has been passed on through generations isn't really a, a helpful definition for a lot of us a lot of us you know and especially this concept of selfless and selfish and you know I think societally a lot of us are, are, are being given messages you know around love and what love requires and kind of pushing our needs completely to the bottom to show up and that's what we do for family I just question all of these messages because I don't believe that to be true. We can love and still have to step away or create distance, not as maybe no contact like I am. I don't think this is the path for everyone. And there's a lot of unique, you know, kind of aspects of my own dynamics in my family that warranted this path for me. Um, but whatever version of space it is that anyone might need, even from family, you know, that I think is, is, is okay. So it is, and I think part of the gift of healing and acknowledging these, these, intergenerational patterns that we're talking about now is what I call the ability to depersonalize. And really what that means is to have a new understanding of what might have happened to me 
because when things happen to me, again, I'm really simplifying, when things happen, quote unquote, to me, and I'm a child, because of developmentally, how my brain is forming, is growing, from birth until around age seven-ish, we are in what is called an egocentric uh, kind of developmental state, which simply just means we cannot view anything outside, uh, anything from an outsider's perspective. We see everything happening for us, to us, because of us, to really simplify it. So the reason why I say this, this kind of observation and acknowledgement of intergenerational patterns are so important, keep it simple. When bad things happen and I'm in that developmental period of egocentricism, I do feel I am to blame. So when I have, when I haven't been seen, heard, acknowledged, or even more so when I've been a victim of any sort of abuse, my childlike mind, because this is all it can do developmentally, is going to assign a blame to myself because I'm a bad kid, because I'm not worthy, because I'm not lovable. I mean, the list really, really goes on. It makes it about me because I can't understand, right, that my caregiver might be coming home in this way for reasons outside of me. I just developmentally can't. That's just an impossibility in our brains. We don't get that ability to take another's perspective, which is actually called empathy. That's what empathy is, being able to assume another's perspective and maybe feel the way the other person would be feeling until we're of a developmental age, until we're in that adolescent period. So why is it so problematic? And why is it so helpful to see where these patterns came from? A lot of us carry those stories into our adulthood. One of the most commonly held, I call them narratives, beliefs about the self that so much of the collective has internalized, and they essentially think it's true, is a version of I'm not worthy. There's so many humans that are walking around this planet and making decisions from that space of I'm not worthy because of something that happened in their childhood that as a result, they did feel not worthy. And because they had no other reason to understand, you know, why mom couldn't be available or why dad hit or whatever it was, it was because they weren't worthy. So now as an adult, we have to, what I said, depersonalize. When we can step back. And so for instance, I can understand that my mom was not able to emotionally connect with me, not because I was unlovable, but because of her inability, because she didn't have the tools to. Now I can resolve, absolve myself of taking it personally. Now I can begin to understand, and this takes time, or allow in a new belief, right, that I am worthy, that I'm lovable, and that my mom just couldn't. It had nothing to do with me. And a lot of us are causing ourselves or are living with so much suffering because we actually continue to believe it is about us. Hmm. So how can we, how do we get there from, from, because we can listen to this and I'm also like nodding along and understand it. And on that adult level of, of cognitively, like, yes, this makes sense. Of course it wasn't my fault. Of course. Like I was so little, you know, it makes sense in the, in the head. How, how, what, what's the action of pulling that into a knowing in the body? Yeah. That, that kind mm -hmm. of gap between thinking about healing and actually healing. Yep. So first and foremost, when you begin to practice consciousness. So assuming we're doing that, right? Observe yourself during the day because you might come to realize that Rachel, you, I, I mean, a lot of us now know we have thoughts all day long. Our internal world is talking at us all day long, right? So once you become conscious, you can begin to see, observe those thoughts. So you might be surprised to see that all day long you're walking around this mantra of some version of I'm not worthy, or you're viewing everything that's happening to you in your given day as evidence of not being worthy, right? So you might not even be aware of how much we're strengthening, even if you kind of logically, you're like, okay, I know that 
you know, whatever happened to me as a childhood wasn't the result. You know, I logically get this. You might not be aware that all day long you're telling yourself actually the quite opposite. You're telling yourself, you know, and you're, or you're viewing the world or you're allowing the world to accumulate all of this evidence for this belief. So that's the first step is really observe because some of us are really surprised a, how much thinking is happening and how much we are filtering the world or our daily experiences through these lenses. That's surprising for a lot of us. And B, we can become to be surprised based on the, when we see the lenses that we're viewing the world through. So first we need to really see, you know, kind of how and how much of an impact we are carrying those old stories with us. And then we need to start showing up and allowing ourselves to begin to create habits and practices or moments where we can allow ourselves to feel worthy. I'm just continuing to use this example. Now that's not going to happen overnight, right? So now that might mean building in some new practices in my day that will move me toward worthiness. So it kind of becomes a twofold process. So first we have to become conscious and really aware of all the moments that we're living in that autopilot or that we're allowing that to color and to strengthen these beliefs possibly about the self. And then we also need to be in, begin to create new beliefs about the self. And that might lead to, I mean, as it did for you and also has in some ways for me to, to something's changing in our, in those constellations of family, maybe realizing that actually doesn't serve me to spend this much time with this person or to be in this constellation. Um, and so then we get to show, yeah, change how we actually show up in the world. And that a lot of people will talk to me about or will message me as they go through this healing journey too about the, the changing nature of relationships. Now, like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that all of our old long-term relationships end. Absolutely not. You know, some some might continue as is. It's, a lot of people, though, do see some reorganization in their relationships that ultimately benefit both parties in the long term. Right. And also, I think what's what's fascinating is uh, having moments when we realize that that things actually change in our relationships, not because we told the other person to change, yeah. but because we changed. Yeah, that's, that's it. the most empowering thing. I mean, that's such empowerment there. And I, I just go back to that personal individual empowerment with, with everything. We, me too. You know, I've, I've lived such a pattern, you know, of, of looking outside myself for other people just to do things a bit differently and then I don't have to be mad or sad or you know whatever it is and I've never I, I've just really met such empowerment when I've learned and lived living and, and I believe the wisdom of life is our greatest teacher of actually living that you know don't believe what I'm saying create a little bit of change in your life and then see the change that happens and it really I mean not to be cliche but it does it does start within if we want our relationships to change we start showing up differently and incredible change can happen Ah, oh. do you, I wish, do you need to start a podcast or do you already have a podcast that I'm not aware exists? A po- podcast is coming. I'm actually in the middle. So I was just able to finally uh, announce a week, I think, or two ago. I'm in the middle of writing my first book. So in, I think, the fall when book writing is a, is a bit over the hump of that, a uh, podcast is on the docket. Oh, amazing. I can't wait to read and listen. Yeah, I wish this podcast was two hours long. I could listen to you speak all day. Thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all of this wisdom, all of these tools. Just, uh, I appreciate your work in the world so much. And I hope when this pandemic is over, I can meet you in person and give you a hug. I would love that. I would love that. I, I, I was a little, when I, when I heard you reach out, I was like, damn, of course. I, I was like, I would 
totally on a plane to Aruba to give you a hug. So I am busy. Let's do version episode two of this or continuation of this conversation in Aruba. Let's do it. I love it. I love it. But in all seriousness, Rachel, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Like I said, I've I you've been in my world in my orbit unbeknownst to you. So this was an honor. Really excited to connect with your community. I hope they find this conversation helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wishing you a safe ending to this <laughs> to this coronavirus you too. situation. You too. Safe and yeah. as swift as possible, right? As swift as possible. Mm-hmm. And hope to see you soon. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and thanks to our guest, Dr. Nicole LaPera. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast. You can find them on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and of course, thanks to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I'll see you next week.